Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for book people, for bookish people, for people who like books, for book nerds. Do you want to reach those people on the internet? Go to litbreaker.com, litbreaker.com. Go there, find out how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Paris Review, Electric Literature, the list goes on. Litbreaker.com, it's an online advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one all person right, and just all one right, all right, all right. All right, everybody, <laughs> right. here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is the Other People podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Masande Changa. His novel, The Reactive, available now in the United States from $2 Radio. Uh, the Reactive is the official December pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. The Nervous Breakdown is, uh, .com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own book club. You can sign up for that over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Uh, we recorded this interview via Skype as Masande's in South Africa. And uh, as I said, I'm here in Los Angeles. And I really hope that you guys enjoy this. This is the final episode of 2016. Uh, what better way uh, to to end it than with this con- with this conversation uh, with a terrific young author? So here he is, folks. This is Masande Changa, and his novel, one more time, is called The Reactive. So I guess in terms of the beginning of kind of formulating anything resembling a manuscript. Um, probably started in 2011 but then I kind of kept discarding and discarding and then in the beginning of 2013 actually um, I sat down so I was actually able to write the first draft in about six months but I mean it had been gestating the whole time yeah and what was it about moving back home with your parents like what was it like what what in that circumstance made it click for you do you know or was there something within that you know within that um time period that happened for you creatively yeah i mean there's a number of things and i guess 
even though this might not sound very encouraging, I think part of it had to do with resignation, you know, that um, I actually had to stop being so cerebral and kind of like so deliberate, not in terms of how I was actually writing the thing, but in terms of what I wanted it to be, you know, this idea of just wanting to be a novelist. And um, so I kind of resigned myself to going back home. And when I did that, I was able to, I was living um, like in the cottage at the back of my, my brother's yard. And I kept working and it kept not working. And then I kind of came to this point where I asked myself, you know, why is this so important? Like, what is this thing about being a novelist? And it was in asking myself that question that I was able to actually take a step back from myself. Look at my brother, look at his wife, you know, look at my niece. And also, like, look at everyone else who was around the small town, um, including my mother. And... In doing that, I was able to actually realize that everyone was kind of engaged in this thing that they wanted to do, you know, in this way that they wanted to interact with the world. And so I began to think about why that was, why any of us do anything, actually, you know, why we endeavor to do anything. And I came to this conclusion that, you know, it was kind of about survival, whether that was physical or symbolic, um, it's kind of either wanting to survive in real time or leaving some sort of mark or some sort of interaction with the world and with other people. And that's when I actually realized what I wanted to write about. Um, I wanted to write about mortality because at the time I really actually felt intimidated by it. And once that clicked for me, then I was able to kind of like write... um, the first part of the book, almost like in a single sitting, because now it had this engine. Well, yeah, it's, and it's like, you know, I forget who it is. There's some philosopher. It's like a famous quote from a philosopher about how if you have a strong enough why, like a strong enough understanding of why you're doing something, then suddenly the how you do it um, is easily, you know, easily overcome. You know what I'm saying? Like once you know that, then you have your North Star and, you know, it makes sense that things would suddenly, you know, fall into place. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that because before then I'd kind of been tinkering with this idea of writing, um, what I wanted to be like a very, not necessarily contemporary, but like modern novel that dealt with kind of like all these, um, modern themes like alienation, technology, uh, recreational drug use, Etc. And my idea of doing it was kind of to make Cape Town uh, this global city which could be interchangeable with any other city in the world. Um, but then I realized, actually, you know, that's, I was too distant from the work. But once I had that, which did give me the how, um, I was just able to keep going. Hmm. And did you have, I mean, were the characters that you originally had been playing around with in the earlier drafts of the book, did most of them remain, or did you, did you kind of start fresh on a, with a completely new direction? Um, they kind of remained. The names changed, but they remained. Um, because I kind of always wanted this idea of um, these three characters um, who were different in their own ways, but also quite similar. 
and kind of formed this mini community that they had, which they used to kind of navigate the space. Um, but uh, I mean, through the process of writing it, I actually also um, happened to learn a lot more about them than I thought I initially knew. Like what? Like, I didn't know their backstories, man. And I knew that, like, my main character, Linda Nighty, was going to be, like, this guy who kind of navigates all these spaces. And I kind of knew how he thinks about the world and how he feels, you know. And I was kind of, like, really proud of that. But there was something that wasn't perhaps, I think, vulnerable enough about him. You know, he was he still came across as kind of like very distant and very above it all. And when I learned, as I said, when I went back home and I actually learned um, the problem that he had, or rather like what his one kind of um, anchor was, which was uh, the death of his brother, I was able through that to actually also delve into the other characters. Whereas... um, with Rowan, I was able to find out why, you know, he's so fascinated with technology, that it was a way for him to connect and that he'd been deeply alienated um, because he has kind of like um, these setbacks, you know, in terms of like his anxiety and epilepsy and that Cecilia is as, as existential as she is because of, um, you know, what she experienced with her mother in terms of her dying at such a young age. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And so when you finally got this, that you said you wrote the first draft in six months, um, and then you, I'm sure you refined it. And then at what point did you go out uh, to publishers? And, and I'm assuming that in South Africa, it works much the same way that it does here. You have to have a literary agent, or do you, did you submit directly to publisher? 
it's I'm glad you actually brought that up. It's really different. Um, we don't actually use a literary agent uh, system. Um, so what happened is that I wrote it as um, my graduate thesis, and it got graded, and then and then I got it back. And at that point, you know, it still needed a lot of kind of refinement, but that's when I decided, look, um, my supervisor was published by these guys, and they really great. And I was kind of thinking, mm, it would be cool, but I hadn't actually sent it out yet. And instead, what happened is, um, during the process of writing this book, I actually wrote a short story um, called Space, which was first nominated for the Pen New Voices Award, and then I actually ended up um, winning that prize. But before I'd won it, um, I actually got an email from those publishers, and um, they just asked me to come around for coffee, and I did. And he told me that um, he was actually like a huge admirer of the story, and he asked me if I had anything longer. And at that point, I was sitting with this thing, and I said yes, and I sent it to him. And they, he read it, gave it to a couple of readers, and then they got back to me saying that they wanted to put it out. Wow. And how long did that, how, like, what was the turnaround on that? Just like a couple of weeks? Uh, <laughs> it was another, it was another month and a half to two months. Okay. So, yeah. So in earnest, we really started editing it, uh, at the beginning of 2014 and then it came out in October. And so how much, how much did it change, uh, substantially when, once you had a publisher, like how much of an editorial process did it go through? after acquisition <laughs> so here's the strange thing sometimes i end up like really being compulsive with edits after i actually given it to them i sit back to work on it and it kind of grew to like twice its size <laughs> and, <laughs> and they only had like the, the original manuscript because i wasn't really corresponding with them I was giving them time to read and then it was time to start, and then my editor says, well, you know, I have a different book here. And so we kind of like, I'm like, okay, no, I, I didn't know what you guys thought. And I just, you know, instead of like waiting on you, I wanted to just fit all this stuff in for myself. But I actually realized that um, a lot of it was just elaborating on things that were already there. So I took it on myself to kind of get rid of that stuff. And then um, we worked together. Yeah, see, I find myself, I find myself like very susceptible to accepting, like whatever an editor tells me, I'm like, okay, I'll do it. Like, <laughs> I just want someone to, <laughs> I, I just want someone to tell me what to do. I don't know if you feel that way, but I love like when you have an editor or somebody who gives your book a careful read and then they hand, you know, they hand me notes. I'm not inclined, unless I guess I, I really have a strong feeling. Occasionally that happens, but most of the time I'll take any note. Uh, I just yeah. assume I assume they're right. I don't know if that's the right uh, the right way to go about it, but that's the way that like my mind works. I mean, I can totally relate to that, uh, especially if you've been sitting with something for a while. And I kind of felt that I probably would be susceptible to the same thing. So before we started working, I uh, sent her this email, and I was like, "Look." I probably have this tendency because I actually, I mean, she's a writer too, and I, I think she's actually really good, and um, I admire her. And in fact, it was really a coincidence because um, 
when I was in high school, she was working for this journal, and she actually published, like, my first story. So it was, like, a weird thing of, like, 10 years later, you know, we meet again, and we work together. Hmm. And so, I, yeah, so I told her, you know, I kind of, like, respect your work, and I just want you to know that during this whole process, um, when we're sending each other notes, I will kind of, like, say certain things that might not come across the right way, um, and at times I will say yes to something and then change my mind later. Well, not really change my mind. It's just, I was really anxious of telling you the first time, but now I'm telling you. And, uh, she was like, okay, cool. You know, I get it. And then we just started working. Her notes were really good. Um, in fact, the weird thing that happened is that she kind of edited like this one not even one line, just this one word, I think. She kind of shortened it, right? And when I was reading it back, there was just something about it, like, that just fit with the rhythm of the rest of the sentences. And I was like, yo, you know, that's like the final piece um, in terms of, like, the musicality and the voice of the character. And then I didn't speak to her for, like, a week and a half after that. I just went back and like edited it, just kind of um, going off the strength of like what I'd felt with like that one word. And what was the she word? Kind of she basically um, she changed uh, technicon to tech. <laughs> and that did it. That unlocked it for you. <laughs> that did it. That huh. did it. Because when you say tech, you know, it's kind of like this familiarity with the place. And it just gave me a sense of this character's voice. And it's exactly what I needed to re- finally kind of remove them um, from how I kind of um, speak or like relate with the world to kind of make it alien enough for me to have this fabric that I could now follow instead of having to come up with it every time. Isn't it funny how this, like the littlest thing can lead to a creative breakthrough like that? I mean, the tiniest little detail and or the tiniest little brush stroke and suddenly the door's open, and you've got it. Exactly, and a lot of it is actually really humbling. Of course, you're not going to say it like when you're sitting on a panel somewhere being important that actually that is completely accidental. But sometimes you're not thinking, and mistakes creep up, and like these mistakes actually end up being really vital things to the manuscript. Yeah, well, I was I was funny. I, like I was just thinking as you were talking about a, an interview that you did. I was reading, and you were you were discussing the book and how it wasn't necessarily autobiographical, but you felt like the sensibility of the characters um, had to be similar to your own yeah. in order for you to be able to write the book and, yeah. to, and to voice them properly. And that's like the most logical. Yeah. It's it's the most logical thought in the world. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, um, it's something that. I've kind of spent some time thinking about in terms of writing because you're right, there are writers who are capable of doing that and it's like really brilliant, you know, you are in awe of them. They can completely kind of um, occupy a completely different sensibility and kind of bring it to life and it's entirely plausible and super insightful and that's something that I admire. But on the other hand, I also kind of like admire other writers who kind of approach fiction 
as um, more of a way of kind of personally engaging with the world, you know. Yeah. As opposed, yeah. I'm the same way. And and I think it's a situation, too, where um, I I find myself sometimes getting into a conversation with myself where I'm trying to decide what kind of writer I am. You know, am I an auto, am I a writer of autobiographical work? Is that my strength? And, you know, it's like, it's like a matter of trying to decide on your identity. And then I can sometimes feel, uh, strongly one way or the other. And then on the flip side, I'll sometimes tell myself like, there's no rules here. You know, it's about imagination. You can do this any which way. And, you know, it's hard, I think, to, to land on a sense of your own creative self, in a way that feels firm. Like maybe there, maybe that's an illusion. Maybe it's always like shifting and, uh, you know, there, there's no real boundaries to it, but, uh, it does seem like really good artists often have a strong sense of their own creative identity and a a strong sense of their own strengths and they play to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I completely agree. And, those are the kind of writers that I've always been drawn to, you know. Um, there's something about that that I really kind of admire, of taking this medium and kind of distilling reality and, like, in a way that you can simulate it so that it does still have, like, the effects of, like, something created, something that is fiction, but also something that communicates something that leads directly back to you, Um I don't know, it just feels a lot more immediate for me and actually a lot more, I guess, exciting. Yeah, I don't know. Like, and there's something, there's a vulnerability in it, you know, when you're talking about writers, when you yeah. fe- you can really feel like the blood on the page. You can feel the, you know, the vulnerability and the, um, like, you were t- like you were saying earlier, that attempt to communicate with the yeah. reader in a really personal way. There's a generosity in that. Um, that I admire. And I think I'm, you know, I do this show. I, I've said this before, uh, you know, in interviews where, you know, I'm obviously very interested in talking to the person who wrote the book and finding out about them. And when I'm reading work that's written in that vein, I feel like there's a more direct line. Do you know what I'm saying? As opposed to being, <laughs> as opposed to being, uh, you know, hit, like the, the author being, hit, you know, hidden, you know, hidden behind, um, these different layers of uh, invention, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, as a, as a matter of personal preference, it's like, it, it creates more work for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I totally get that. I mean, there are also people, I guess, who are able to kind of straddle between the two and that's pretty cool too. Um, but it's kind of weird. I mean, you mentioned this idea of kind of thinking about what kind of writer you are. And, I mean, I fall probably into the same kind of, like, loop sometimes. But it's something that I really try to, like, veer away from. But I guess it's also, in a way, inevitable, you know, because writers uh, now, you know, we want to write, we want to be able to keep writing. And as a result, because, I mean, as a given, we're kind of people who are supposed to be aware and I guess in some sense also cerebral. So there is an awareness of the market. And the market, I think, kind of creates these categories, you know. You should really be able to do what you want to do and follow it through as long as it's kind of honest and it resonates with you and it's something that you're doing that you feel is inspired. 
Um, but absolutely, you know, there's the personal kind of writer and then there's the writer who does, you know, this great work with like the sweeping pathos. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and like, and like a, you know, a, a huge cast of characters and, you know, every single one of them is drawn yeah, from like different yeah. backgrounds. It's, you know, that's very impressive as well. I can find myself like, uh, in awe of people who know how to do that, you know, something yeah. to, something to aspire to, I guess. But, um, you know, as a person who, as you know, who debuted so strongly, um, and got such a great response, you know, you now have the challenge of having to follow it up. And not only are you, you know, are you working against, uh, like the kind of internal conversations that I could imagine would involve like, you know, wanting to, uh, write something that's worthy of the first success or something that uh, even surpasses it. But you also have created uh, a sort of creative identity for yourself. You know, you, your voice is out there. You mentioned readers coming up to you in bars and reciting, you know, passages from your novel to you. Um, something about the music of your language uh, in the reactive uh, really resonated with them. Like, do you feel an obligation in your follow-up novel to deliver... Um, something that I don't want to say is similar to it, but similar in terms of, uh, it's music. Um, yeah. do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like yeah. you, it's kind of like you have a brand. I hate to, to reduce it to such a crass <laughs> term, but it's like, you know, if you, if you did something that was a complete, um, you know, a complete deviation from the first book, completely different. Yeah. would you be concerned that your readership would, you know, not embrace it as warmly? Or is that something that you try to push out of your mind? I mean, I mean, I absolutely do try to push it out of my mind, but I mean, it's a great question. You're, you're like, you're like, thanks for reminding me, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question because on one hand, right, you can kind of continue um, along a similar vein and people would, be like, oh, he can only do this one thing, and right. not as good as the first one anyway. Or you can like go in a completely different route, and you know they'd be like, well, I just like his first book. Um, so I was kind of it's when I was on tour in the U.S. Actually, you know, um, because of the kind of like book industry you guys have, you always have to think about these questions. Um, I met this writer who's really great, actually. Um, so she's telling us about how um, she wrote, she's working on her second book. And her agent really adored her first book. and um, But she kind of really likes the one she's working on now. And she sent it to her, and the agent kind of responded. You know, she's like, look, it's good, but it's she doesn't like the voice. And so she was telling us, yeah, it's this thing, you know, she won't come out and say it, but she feels like she's gone off brand. And uh, so you're kind of always thinking about these things. Yeah. Well, not always. I thought about them then. And um, you have to block it. You I'm, have to block it out of your mind. You have to just write. I mean, you can't because it's, you know, like there's only I don't want to sound too authoritative, but it's like there's one way to write a book. You know, like you couldn't have written the reactive until you went through 
all of those different drafts, you know, moved back with your parents, had all of those failures, achieved, uh, achieved, achieved a, a total resignation. <laughs> um, you know, Absolutely. like, you know, you, you, you finally found it there. And like, you know, to try to, to try to write to an audience that never works, you know, if you, you, you have to, you have to just write the book you, you have to write. Absolutely, man. I, I completely agree. There's this uh, great quote by Zadie Smith. I think she was kind of like responding to James Wood, who was making, when he came up with that whole thing about hysterical realism and kind of like throwing in David Foster Wallace and Franzen in there and her. And she was like, well, you know, at the end of the day, you actually don't end up really writing the book that you want to write you end up writing the book that you can write and for me like that was kind of like a comfort you know but in terms materially though i remember at this other reading when they were asking me um what i'm going to be working on next i kind of told them that i you know i'd be doing um a novella actually you know something that I know is kind of approached with disdain and not a lot of people are looking to publish it just so that I could actually get back into that space where the writing was about writing instead of um, thinking of a novel and thinking about already how it's performing before I've even completed it. Yeah. So it's kind of like a process of rinsing that out um, before I do a second novel. I think novella novella is kind of an underappreciated form. It's you know because you can read it in a sitting. It's it's sort of, it feels like it would be more popular these days than it has been because yeah, of, yeah. because of people's shortened attention spans and it's digestible, but it's a little bit more than a short story. It seems like kind of the sweet yeah. spot, but you know maybe not. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. But I guess a lot of people when they approach them, it still feels even though it's packaged like a book, it still feels like a story. And there's just something about, um, and it's strange, though, um, that I've found, because a lot of people kind of are under this impression that people do not care about novels anymore. But, like, I feel like they're doing really well, and there's still this attachment to this idea of, like, this thing that you can sit with for a while, and, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it you know, it... it... There's a lot of there's a, there are a lot of books being read. I think that there's just so many books being published that it's hard to cut through, you know, and to really find a readership. Um, when it happens, it's sort of a miracle. Uh, but yeah. you know, if you look at the actual numbers, there are millions of you know there are millions of novels flying off the shelves all over the world. You know, people are reading, uh, and I think when a book resonates, um, you know, the, I think because it requires so much work compared to the ingestion of other fo art forms you know it's 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 much easier to look at a painting or listen to a song than it is to read a novel uh in, ter in terms of time expenditure so you know and it's a more participatory uh it's a more participatory experience there's an, a, a level of um, thought and imagination that goes into it and so i think when a book gets its hooks into somebody um those it goes deep you know and so uh, it makes sense to me that people would be coming up to you and reciting passages by heart. And, you know, we all feel that way, I think, about our favorite books. Yeah, I mean, it's really encouraging for a writer to, yeah. Because, I mean, you, you get all kind of like the naysaying. So it's really 
you know, encouraging when someone actually started your book and like finished it and like thought about it afterwards. You know? <laughs> just, just when somebody finishes, I, like I've actually, that's actually how I, when people are like, did you like the book? I'm like, well, I finished it, you know, and that's enough. That's enough. If I finish a book, I liked it. Uh, you know, and if I didn't, then it probably wasn't for me. Uh, yeah. that's kind of a nice metric. And, you know, I don't think it's very rare that you're going to read a book and be like, you know, just everything about it was wonderful. But if you can make it all the way through, then the writer did something that worked for you. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the really weird thing is that sometimes I will read a book and, you know, at some points I am getting annoyed. But by the time that um, I finished reading it, right, and I put it away and now it kind of like exists as a altered text inside my head i find that i've actually reconciled with everything um that i found that i didn't like because i mean it actually stays and it forms like part of my thinking now and um part of my experience and that's what i actually really appreciate about those books that i do finish yeah yeah i'm the same way um i want to i want to ask you about growing up in south africa because uh it's rare that I get to talk to somebody who's sitting there in Johannesburg and, um, you know, it's just completely, uh, it's completely new to the show. So can you talk a little bit about like where you were born, where you were raised and, uh, what your childhood was like? Sure. Um, so I was born in 1986. So that would be four years before, um, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Uh, so this is still during apartheid. It would be another four years in 1994 before we got our first democratic elections and it became a democratic country. Um, my childhood years were spent in what's now known as the Eastern Cape, but back then used to be known as the Siskai. And it was known as the Siskai because it was this thing called a Bantustan or a homeland. Homelands were basically um, segregated areas. They operated as kind of dummy states, um, which had no economy of their own, but fed into what was back then known as white South Africa. So, I mean, they were fairly kind of, um, they had a fair amount of infrastructure. They had parliaments. Um, they had, you know, a middle class that's mainly formed by, you know, bureaucrats. Uh, but it still kind of was um, an area that was very much under uh, minority rule. But then again, within these um, homelands, there were still further divisions. So you'd have like rural areas um, with villages, and then you'd have kind of like townships, and then you'd have suburbs. So my grandmother... Um, was actually from a village. So like the my very first like experiences of life were within that space. Um of kind of like you know, living outside of what's become so familiar now and just with a sense of kind of um I suppose unlimited freedom, you know, you interacted with the world in such a vivid way. And um so from then in order to kind of, um, I suppose, to survive, your parents move you out of that place and they get you into schools 
into kind of um, more town or suburban areas. And so that informed um, the second part of my childhood. And after that, kind of moving into better and better places, um, especially after, you know, at the end of apartheid. So it's, it's a weird feeling of kind of um, always having felt almost dislocated and between multiple worlds because even after we moved like to the suburbs proper I went to boarding school and but before that I changed schools I think like seven times I just I did not like school and then at some point my mother said maybe you are the problem (laughs) (laughs) I stayed at that school so I've lived in the Eastern Cape, I've lived in the Western Cape where Cape Town is. I'm in Gauteng now where Johannesburg is. Um, so I've had the opportunity to experience all these different locales in the country, which in their own ways are pretty distinct from each other. But um, What's your favorite? Suppose, my favorite, it has to be between Cape Town and where I'm actually from, <laughs> which is the Eastern Cape. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I guess I want you to ask me something. It's just so close to me. Like it's, it's almost really difficult to describe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so what did your folks do? Uh, my father was, uh, he used to be a a sales rep and then he became a lecturer. Um, my mother was a teacher. Um, and then she, got into insurance. So, that, okay, so how did, how did your dad was a sales rep and then he became a lecturer, like a college lecturer? Uh, yeah, he taught, at a, he taught economics at, um, at a Technicon, yeah. Okay, no, I'm just like, it's an interesting leap, but I guess it makes sense if he was involved in business. Um, yeah, and... I mean, it, it used to happen all the time because, I mean, he already had the education for it, right? Um, but there were just there just wasn't the opportunity for him to pursue that, hmm. just because of how the country was structured. And then, what about like uh, you know the gift for writing that you have? Like, do either of your parents have any sort of like repressed literary ambitions or any kind of talent that you can trace your own talent from? <laughs> well, I didn't mention that um, actually before my. Mu- after my mother was a teacher, she was actually a model and a journalist. Uh, she actually got a scholarship to do journalism in London, and then she came back. My father, <laughs> he actually likes to kind of fancy himself a writer. Like, we kind of compete a little bit. Like, he's always showing me stuff, and I'm like, well, I wrote this. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll check it out later. But like, let me look at yours. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, you look at mine. Um, but I guess in terms of actually getting into like writing and reading, it has to do most likely with um, just going to boarding school. You know, I changed environment so much that by the time I was in high school, it was really difficult for me to kind of settle in. Um, I went to this. I guess what you guys would call a prep school, like a private um, single-sex school, just all boys. 
and with kind of a very strong Anglican, like, and also very kind of patriarchal um, thing going for it. And, yeah, it took me a while to be able to adjust to that. What, what, what was it about school that you didn't like? <laughs> Everything? I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I was coming from kind of like being someone who'd never felt any inhibitions being imposed on their imagination and just also not being able to absorb the social mores and not understanding the authority that teachers had, not only in terms of like how they marked your work, but in terms of how they regulated your behavior. It just didn't make sense to me. Um, but yeah, so when I was in high school, I just started kind of reading a lot, you know. Um, in terms, that's what I would do during our breaks, because I kind, I kind of couldn't. I cracked maybe three previous <laughs> communities that I was kind of new to, and by the time I got to high school, I couldn't do it anymore. And so I just kind of kept reading. And um, meaning, what you didn't, you didn't have friends, so you just read books. Yeah, that was me. That was you. That's but you know you're you're educating yourself. <laughs> what were you reading? Um, well, I guess I read Stephen King, and who else in high school? I mean, I read all the set works that we got, um, which were very, very kind of like nineteenth-century English novel. Um, but I was able to kind of read uh, Stephen King and. At some point, I actually also found uh, Chuck Palahniuk. I think I read like what Survivor, and yeah. I thought that was really cool. So I read I, I read them, and like with King, because of like the length of his books, like I could now like feel more confident to like approach basically anything in our library. And with that, I kind of started, you know, sometimes you like a book so much you feel in some way that you have to respond. And so I just kind of started writing, you know, my own short stories um, from that point. And, yeah, basically have been doing that ever since. Wow. So, uh, yeah, what what Stephen King do you like the best? It's interesting, too. I feel like a lot of, like, I, I read Stephen King when I was a young man. Um, it was like, you know, junior high, high school. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. that, his work really resonates with like adolescent boys. Not, not that that's the only people with whom it resonates, but you know, like I, I found that that was the time in my life when I was drawn to that work too. And, and to horror yeah. and to also to horror, like, uh, horror movies as well was during that time. I was like super, super into horror films. Yeah. I actually remember that. I, I might've been the same way. Um, but I think like, at some point, they just seemed like really funny. I remember this one movie called Pinocchio Syndrome or something. And it was really cool to be able to laugh at them instead of being scared at some point. And I guess maybe there is a little bit of adolescent bravado behind that. Um, but the book that I really liked actually was, um, and I found it like completely randomly and it wasn't really attached to, um, I mean, it it didn't come as a series. It was just like, this one slim book and that's uh the gunslinger right from the dark tower series and i just really kind of was captivated by like the setting which was at the same time realist but also like kind of properly surreal you know and yeah 
that he's, was that was the one. He's incredible the way the way that he can like talk about writers um, who can uh, inhabit characters that fall outside of their own realm and who can and also writers who can just crank them out. Um, at some point, my my hope is to have him on the show so I can just like ask him like what the fuck is wrong with him? Like, how can you write so Dude, quickly? That, <laughs> like, it's unbelievable to me. That would, that would be incredible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I also, yeah. Like I sometimes feel weird. Like he's still alive, you know, like and no one's probably going to do this for a while. What he's done. Yeah. So it's, it's like, you know, so I mean, even writers that like, I kind of admire and now like, in middle age and they also read them as read him as like adolescents and it's like really strange well he's somebody that everybody pretty much has read at least one of his books and that's not a common thing um i you know i'm sure there are people out there who've never picked up stephen king but they're few and far between especially in the literary world and i mean shit yeah. he's, he's he's popular over in south africa too he's global <laughs> he is global <laughs> he is global so I mean, we also we also got to watch it. Like it was a mini series here as well. So maybe that's got something to do with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, like that. I mean, that's the other thing. I think a lot of his success um, in literature, in terms of uh, book sales, has come from the fact that his books have been translated to the screen so many times. You know, it almost it happens with almost every single one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So speaking of which, is there uh, are there is there a movie deal for the reactive? Um, well, two dollar radio has the option, and we've got a couple of people kind of canvassing uh, different uh, production companies um, to try and get something off the ground. Um, yeah, so my publisher is really keen on like, you know, kind of making an adaptation. Yeah, but nothing official yet. No official word. No, not yet. Um, there's some people though that we have tagged. And so, and then what do you, uh, like you, you had mentioned earlier about, um, going to Boston for graduate school. So yeah. you left board like, for somebody who hated school, you made it all the way to graduate school. <laughs> yeah. Um, it all changed in high school. I was in this environment, as I said, like a very, um, kind of preppy, very kind of patriarchal, um, very jockish kind of like boys' school. Was it integrated? And, sorry. Was it, it was an integrated high school? But you said it was it was it was all boys. But I mean, it was uh, boys of all different yeah, races. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It was. Um, actually, those schools were actually integrated like way before others were able to because they kind of have this almost um, sovereign thing they have going on. But of course, like the fees are like extremely high. But in any case, I was there and, you know, I wasn't really going to be able to get into the whole job thing. Uh, simply because also I changed school so much, I'd never been able to stick with like a single sports program. And, but it felt like, you know, this is kind of like how the world is going to be. So you probably are going to need some kind of tool to navigate it. And for me, kind of just turning my attention to school, I, I, it just was not that difficult. And I realized, well, you know, this perhaps maybe is a way out, you know, just kind of like get good grades and then maybe you can have what you want 
you know, later on in life. And so I kind of almost robotically like approached it that way. And um, that carried on through to university. And when I got to university, I actually found that there were things that I didn't mind studying. Um, but of course, by then, I'd already had, you know, the training that I need to be able to to concentrate. And Where did you go to school? Yeah, so, uh, you mean university? Yeah. I went to the University of Cape Town. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I got, when I was, I graduated from there and then I had a job as a music journalist uh, for about a year. And while I was doing that, that's when I got um, a Fulbright to, to study in the U.S. And so that's how that happened. And so where did you go in Boston? I went to BU. And, and you did you have a good time there? <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I did, actually. Um, it was really cool. I mean, this was around, I guess, 2010. Um, which was kind of like a cool time, I feel, to be around there. Like, I know I'm not talking about school, but there was like a lot of really cool music coming out. And it was just also really great to have like this access, um, to so many of these kind of, um, writers and these books, um, that I previously had to kind of like order online and like wait for like a month or something. And they were like right there in the bookstore. So that was pretty cool. And did, were you going to like literary events and seeing readings and stuff like that or no? Uh, a friend of mine had, um, an event that he had for poets. Uh, it was called U35. So for poets who are under 35, I went to a few of those. Um, and yeah, just kind of being able to hang out with people. And what's uh, what was your impression of the United States? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I went. Where, where did I go? I actually went to Boston. I went to Berkeley, and I went to Chicago. And what else? Um, I really liked Berkeley, man. Yeah. And Chicago, yeah, and Chicago was pretty cool too. Uh, Boston, I liked some things, some not so much. So let's start with the things that you didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I didn't like how much, I mean, I get it, right? You know, with the whole kind of like New England intellectual tradition, but with some people that I spoke to, it did come off a little bit like really self-congratulatory in terms of like, here you guys are like really, really, really patting yourselves on the backs for like being these really just liberals and yet to live in the city, um, which is not integrated at all. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, this is, yeah, that's, a, that's a bit of a problem. Um, what I did like about it is, I guess it's, I guess I liked all the things that they like about it, you know. Um, it's this kind of like really pristine place. It's this place where you can kind of like be left alone, but it's a lot calmer than New York. 
and um, yeah, I, I I like that because there was a, at a time in my life where I kind of required that um, solitude. What were you What were you studying in graduate school? I was actually doing um, both uh, literature and African American studies. Huh. That's ambitious. <laughs> So you went from, I love this, you went from a guy who hopped like from school to school to school, <laughs> hated school, and then ended up in graduate school with like a double master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh -huh. um, I don't know. Also, like school was kind of redeemed for me from like having a day job. I did not like, I, I disliked that more than I did school. Yeah. Well, see, you just found yeah. something you hated more. That's what, that was the secret. Basically, that's what happened. <laughs> so what are you working on now? Uh, are you willing to talk about it? Uh, sure. I mean, I just kind of like, I finished a draft of this novella that I mentioned earlier. And um, I, I'm now going back uh, to my second novel. It should be my second novel, which I think is probably like... Uh, I mean, it's a much longer book, so I think it's like a fourth of the way in. But um, like I said, like I needed a break from like this idea of, you know, how authors kind of like produce these books, right? Like every couple of years and it's an event and will it entertain people or not? Will they be kind of captured by it or not? And then you kind of go into a hole and then you produce another product so the reason for doing this novella, which I just drafted, was to kind of reacquaint myself with why, you know, um, why I kind of feel compelled to write to begin with. And, yeah, I feel like it kind of did that for me. Well, it's funny because uh, we, we talked about that at the beginning of our conversation where, you know, once you find the why, you found the why for the reactive, you know, so the kind of pro a project-specific why. Um, yeah. but I think there's also maybe a broader why in terms of like, you know, why we, why we put ourselves through this in the first place. Like why, why write fiction? Why tell stories? Um, you know, and maybe you, you have an answer for both of those, you know, you have an answer to the broader question and then you have to find the, the why for each individual book. Absolutely. Like I really, really, really like the idea of that. Um, because I mean, you know, it's all, it's not always guaranteed. Um, what's going to happen to a work once you're done with it you know I mean you might kind of come up with something really brilliant something that you really like and close people to you feel the same way about but it might not perform and you know you might not get in kind in terms of like societal rewards or even monetary rewards what you actually put into this thing that you've created so at the very least, you know, I think it matters to be able to get something from, from it for yourself, you know, um, at least during the process. And of course, I mean, it's not the easiest thing to do because a lot of writers, are, it's usually just kind of like from getting from the starting point to the end point and then like this really kind of like aggravating editing processes to make the prose less awkward. But I hope some. I I always hope that in the middle of doing that, there's something that I can feel like is kind of rewarding for me personally. Like, okay, I took that away from that book, 
and it's okay, you know, what happens to it afterwards. That seems like that seems like a healthy perspective. You have to try, man. Yeah. Well, and I was I'm curious too, like with a novella and then also with the second novel, did the or, or has the the drafting processes for each of those respectively um, mirrored the work that you did on the first one? Like, did you have to write like a lot of pages that ultimately didn't work in order to get to the beginning of the next thing? Did you have to move back in with your parents in order to get things going? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Good question. Um, I'm afraid, I think, the like I was telling my publisher um, about this thing that I just finished, and I mean, it doesn't have a strong an origin story, but that's because its origin story like happened a long time ago. Um, it's basically kind of like a book in which I kind of feel ready to finally um, render into fiction um, those spaces that I was telling you about, like the dummy states, the homelands. And it's material I've always wanted to write about, but I just didn't have an in um, in terms of like how to approach it. And when I was on tour in the U.S., I actually forgot um, the charger for my computer. Uh, so me and my publisher had to share a computer. So sometimes we'd be on the road, you know, and he'd ask me, like, do you want to use the computer? And I'd be like, I don't know, man. I don't actually really feel like working. Now. But he did it so often that I had to actually think about, okay, fine, you know, what am I going to do? Um, but I didn't start writing it in the U.S. Um, I came back, uh, I think, maybe two and a half months ago and kind of, I guess, had a little bit of energy to burn off before going back to this novel. Um, and, yeah, so I kind of, like, wrote it and, you know, drafted it, and it's sitting here. And I would not be surprised um, if there's probably going to be some kind of grand origin story that I don't know yet about the second novel. Yeah, you're not far enough along yet, you know. There's plenty that there's plenty that is still going to happen with that one. I know, I know, man. Like, lots of people kind of you read up on all these writers who kind of like reach the end, you know, of maybe like a 400 page book, and it's like the wrong book. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, but I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, and uh, there are writers, you know, they write four or five hundred pages and trash them and that's how they and they pick you know they pick from those 400 or 500 pages five or ten pages that they actually feel like uh are worth something and they build the novel from that so it's, absolutely it's just the way it's yeah. done it's 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 depressing to <laughs> contemplate but that just seems to be the way that it's done you got to come to terms with it absolutely because i remember like um i think colson whitehead but also philip roth said this that basically he'll write maybe like a hundred pages and kind of go through them with a pen afterwards and just kind of like selecting only the lines that he feels like have any vitality. And it's probable that sometimes there'll be like one sentence out of a hundred pages. And that's where the novel starts. <laughs> On that note, now that we've thoroughly depressed our listeners, um, I want, 
I want to thank you for taking the time. It's a, it's great to talk with you, um, you know, halfway around the world. And I congratulate you on the success of the book. I'm glad we got to spotlight it in the uh, in the book club. And I wish you well on the novella and uh, the second novel. Thanks so much, man. Um, I really appreciate you having me on. Big fan of the podcast. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Masande Shanga. His novel is called The Reactive, available now from $2 Radio. You can uh, find Masande on Twitter. His handle over there is at M Shanga. That's at M N T S H A N G A. You can also find him on Goodreads. Check out $2Radio.com. $2 Radio, one of America's finest, uh, finest independent publishers. Don't forget about the uh, app. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's the best way to listen. If you want to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Again, that's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Make a donation. Keep this thing rolling. Thanks to uh, Kill Rockstars for the theme song music, the transitional music at the top of the show. This here is Guy Lombardo, Old Lang Syne. I think I play this every year for the show before the end of the year. I like this song. I think I've said before, this is probably my favorite song in terms of uh, the emotional response it evokes in me. I don't know what it is. I don't even know what the fuck this song means. It means the end of the year. End of the year. It means time is marching on. And we will all soon be dust. So, uh, and I don't mean that in a morbid way. <laughs> I mean that in a way of uh, perspective. You know, in the, in the uh, in, through the lens of perspective. Oh God, time is marching on. It's all going all too quickly. Let's listen to this song and contemplate that. While we drink ourselves into a stupor and urinate publicly. Anyway, what was I going to say? Farewell to all of the cultural heroes we lost this year. We lost too many good ones to even uh, to even name. And uh, I salute all of them. And I salute you guys for listening. Thanks for making 2016 another great year for the show. And I will talk to you all in the new year. 